So we're going to continue tonight uh, talking about the New Testament canon, which we left off several weeks ago. And we saw that when we say the word canon, it, it comes from the Greek word canon. So we talk about the New Testament canon. We're talking about this Greek word has the idea of like a rule or a standard. Uh, in Greek, it referred to like a measuring rod. Uh, a straight rod that was used to measure something. We would probably say something like a tape measure today or, or a ruler. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about the New Testament canon, the 27 books of the New Testament. It's this measuring rod of truth and what uh, the early church uh, decided on as the New Testament, the 27 books that we have. But the question is, how did they decide which books would be included in the New Testament canon? Last time, several weeks ago, we saw that there were three criteria in determining which books should be included in the New Testament. And the first one was apostolicity. Did I spell that right? No, I did. Slash antiquity. Uh, and what we mean by this is that uh, it had to be written, if they're looking at a document, a letter or a gospel or a book, and they're trying to determine should this be included in the New Te- what we then become known as the New Testament, it had to be written by an apostle or an associate or a disciple of an apostle. And that's the first part. And the second part, the antiquity part, is it had to be written before 100 A.D. So this was the first criteria. Was it written by an apostle or someone discipled by an apostle? And was it written before 100 A.D.? The second criteria in determining what went into the New Testament is Catholicity. And what we mean by this is has nothing to do with the Roman Catholic Church. We're talking about it being universally accepted. Was this book, this gospel, this letter universally accepted by all the churches? Like we saw with the Apostles' Creed when it says we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. We're talking about the universal church, not the Roman Catholic Church. So that's what Catholic means there, is that the universal. So they're looking for books that the Apostles said were authoritative, who then passed that tradition down to bishops, and were then universally accepted by the churches. The third criteria was orthodoxy. Uh, was it uh, in line with what the church had believed? Was it in line with the core beliefs of the church, the doctrinal summaries that they had, the teachings that they were used to, the hymns and the songs that were written? Was it in line with the Old Testament? So they're not going to take a book that is supposedly written by Paul if it contradicts something in the Old Testament. So they're looking for orthodoxy here as well. Uh, but... Why do they write it all down? I mean, they had the Old Testament, and for a long period of, in God's, uh, with God's people throughout history, the Old Testament was sufficient, right? The Old Testament was sufficient for Jesus. So why did they even begin writing these letters down and collecting them into a canon or into a book? Uh, wasn't the Old Testament enough? So why did they feel the need to write these things down? Because by the time some of these first letters and these Gospels were written down on paper, it was some 30 years or so after Jesus had ascended into heaven, before these Gospels were even written down. So why do they decide to write things down 30 years later? Okay, remember, we have this line of authenticity, this line of trustworthiness that's coming from the apostles. So you have Jesus who appoints 12 men to carry on his mission. And then these newly appointed leaders take the church forward into its future. And these men, or the men who were discipled by them, finally wrote letters and gospels down on paper. But before this... Before these men in this line of authenticity wrote these things down, the church, all the church had was the oral tradition. Okay, I'm going to hand you out a few handouts uh, on, we, you can read it later, on the oral tradition. This was written by a guy that I went to seminary with and uh, one of my professors. And so it talks about the oral tradition that the church had as they passed these stories down uh, from one generation to another. So you can read that later. But what do we mean by the oral tradition? What are we talking about when we say there is 
an oral tradition uh, of the Gospels, for instance. For some 30 years, stories about Jesus and all that he had done were just spread orally uh, as people shared them verbally. And so the culture of the first century is very different from our culture, which is this Amazon Prime books are shipped in one day, right? Uh, Books were not the primary source of information in the first century. News actually spread verbally. Most people could not read. Even the elite and sophisticated rich of the day had people read to them. So news spread by word of mouth. In fact, people preferred to hear about an event from an eyewitness rather than read about it. So even if they did have a newspaper or a TV to catch up on the news of the day, they would actually prefer getting that information from an eyewitness, from someone who was there. They preferred hearing over reading. They trusted the spoken word over the written word. Not, not the Old Testament, but just we're talking about just day-to-day life. They preferred getting things orally. So when we're discussing the composition of the New Testament canon and specifically the Gospels, we're looking at a 30-plus uh, year tradition of sharing information about Jesus through the spoken word and not through the written word. So it's not as if Jesus ascends to heaven and they immediately start writing the Gospels. We've got a 30-year period here. But something that we may not be aware of is that in the ancient world, the more important the story was, the more careful people were in preserving it. And so sometimes there might be some details between, that differ between an event that might vary, but the main story stayed the same. And so if somebody left out some an important, an important part of a story or an important detail, people would speak up and correct it. So when it comes to the four Gospels that we have, even if the details don't match up exactly, the story's main point remains the same. For instance, in Matthew chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 7, we have two accounts of Jesus healing a centurion servant. In Luke's Gospel, the conversation takes place between Jesus and the Jewish elders who speak on behalf of the centurion. But in Matthew's Gospel, the conversation, Matthew says, is just between Jesus and the centurion. So which is it? Did Jesus speak to the elders who are speaking on behalf of the centurion? Or did Jesus speak directly with the centurion? So it appears on the surface there's a contradiction, right? But there is no conflict in these accounts when we realize that Matthew has abbreviated his story down. Matthew uses 103 words compared to Luke's version, which is 186 words. So what Matthew has done, he's omitted some material that's non-essential to his story. And the elders serving as go-betweens are the least important element in the story for Matthew. So Matthew makes no mention of these elders because what matters most is that the centurion is healed. And so Matthew's just saying, Jesus talked to this guy and healed him. Whereas Luke is saying, actually, Jesus went through the Jewish leaders to talk to this guy. Another example is found in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. So here Jesus says that God the Father gives good things to those who ask. But but in uh, Luke's account of the same story, he has Jesus saying that God gives the Holy Spirit. Luke says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So which is it? Did Jesus say he gives good things or he gives the Holy Spirit? So in Luke's account, Luke has done some interpretive extension and explanation in his gospel. He says, of all the good things that God gives, the Holy Spirit is the best of them. One more example. What does God the Father say at the baptism of Jesus? In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus comes up out of the water, the voice from heaven says... This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, in their accounts, 
The voice doesn't say, this is my beloved son. The voice says, you are my beloved son. So which is it? See, in Mark and Luke, we have God the Father speaking directly to Jesus at his, at his baptism. In Matthew, Matthew shifts the perspective to the audience and the bystanders. There's a difference there, but the overall meaning has not changed at all, right? Does the meaning change between this is my beloved son or you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased? No, you get the main idea. Jesus is God's son and God is pleased with him. And so Matthew changes that a little to shift the perspective to the audience and those who are, who are listening. We see it also, here's another example I just wrote down earlier, uh, in the temptation accounts where Jesus is being tempted by the devil. Luke has the temple scene where the devil takes him to the top of the temple and says, throw yourself down. God will protect you. His angels will protect you. Luke puts that temptation at the very end of the, the one, two, three. Luke puts that in the number three spot. Whereas in Matthew, it's different. Uh, it comes second in Matthew's account. So which order did it occur in? Did Satan take Jesus up to the top of the temple and say, throw yourself down? Like in Matthew's gospel, did that happen second in the order of, of events or temptations? Or did it happen the way Luke did, where Luke puts it at the very end in the number three slot? So why would Luke do that? Luke is, is exercising Holy Spirit inspired, he's inspired by the Spirit here to make an interpretive shift there because in Luke's gospel, Luke has this emphasis on things happening in the temple. Because right before the temptation narrative, you have the baby Jesus being brought where? To the temple. And then fast forward another chapter, I think, and then you have Jesus, his parents lose him, and where do they find him? When he's like 12 years old? In the temple. Right? And then you have events throughout the Gospels of Luke where things are happening at the temple. And then the very last verse in Luke's Gospel, after Jesus ascended to heaven, it says that the disciples went back to Jerusalem and they were in the temple blessing God. And so Luke has this theme of the temple, so he sees no issue saying, I'm just going to move temptation number two down to number three in my list. Does anything change in the story? Does it matter if Jesus is tempted uh, in Luke's account as number three at the temple? No, nothing changes. So the gospel writers will sometimes uh, word things differently for the emphasis that they have in their gospel. So, um, but the overall meaning is not changed. So when we're talking about the oral tradition of the gospels, we're looking at 30 years of these stories being preserved. And then Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John compose their Gospels. And sometimes they might change something a little for emphasis in their own individual Gospels. And so there are differences sometimes based on their audience. But the meaning is unchanged. Another example of the oral tradition is this phrase. It is better to give than to receive. Who said that? Does anybody know who said it is better to give than to receive? Jesus did. Okay. But where in the Gospels did Jesus say that? Nowhere. It's found in the book of Acts. That's right, Steve. As Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders before he heads off to Jerusalem, Acts 20, 35, here's what he says. In all these things, this is Paul speaking, I have shown that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Jesus never said it is more blessed to give than to receive in the Gospels. And so where did Paul get this saying? Did Jesus have a Twitter account and he just tweeted it out? It was passed down orally. This is proof that there is this strong oral tradition that was preserved and being passed down. Now, we also see evidence that Paul was aware of Luke's gospel because they were co-workers. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, where Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So in this verse, when Paul says the scripture says, he quotes Deuteronomy 25 verse 4 about muzzling an ox. 
And then Paul goes on to say also, the laborer deserves his wages. So what scripture is he quoting there? He's quoting Jesus' words in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, where Jesus is giving instructions to the disciples as he sends them out two by two. Luke 10, 7. Jesus said, And remain in the house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. So we have Paul here in 1 Timothy alluding to Luke's gospel when he says, the scripture says, meaning it's written down in Luke's gospel, like it is written down in Deuteronomy 25. So it seems that, number one, Luke's gospel was written before 1 Timothy. Or two, it could be that this saying of Jesus was just spread orally and this tradition was preserved. But by the time these, when these stories officially began, uh, but the time came when these stories officially began to be written down. But why? Why was the oral tradition not enough? Because there's solid evidence. We have solid evidence that the oral tradition was accurate. After all, the stories, the gospels that we have written down certainly relied on the oral tradition. So why wasn't the oral tradition enough? Here's why. Keep in mind, God's people have always had the revelation of God's word written down. So if the apostles, who were the spokesmen for Jesus, if they decided to write these teachings down, to write these apostolic books down on paper, then those books would immediately be distinctive, right? If you have Peter writing something down, that is different than some other random guy, right? So immediately anything the apostles write down is distinctive. So as soon as any apostle wrote a gospel or a letter, it became distinctive because it carried the authority that Jesus had passed down to the apostles. So God's people have always had the revelation of God's word written down. And so what happened in the Garden of Eden was passed down from Adam and Eve to their children, right? And then after generation and generation and generation. But at some point, who writes Genesis down? Moses. Moses. Moses writes Genesis, at least I believe that, and Barb does. I don't know about the rest of you. I mean, the Bible never says Moses wrote down Genesis, but we know at least coming out of Egypt, Moses was the most learned, having learned probably hieroglyphics and, and all kinds of things. So we believe that, at least I do, Barb, that uh, <laughs> Moses wrote Genesis down, right? And so at some point, after all those many years of this oral tradition of what happened in the garden, how did God create the world, you know, everything that happened after Noah and everything, that tradition, what we know as Genesis, was just being passed down from generation to generation to generation. Abraham's story was passed down from one generation to another. But then one day, Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes it all down. And so it goes to show that the simple matter of the passing of time does not negate the fact that what Moses writes is the word of God. Even though this long period of time has passed, it does not negate the fact that this is God's word that Moses is writing down. The same thing happens with the New Testament. Just because there's been 30 years of oral tradition, oral stories being passed down, being passed from church to church, and then the Gospels are finally recorded on paper, does not negate the fact that this is God's word. So let's just be honest. Uh, does it make any of you nervous that 30 years go by before any of the Gospels are written down? Yeah, okay, yeah, it can be honest. It can be something, that the first, when you first dive into studying the New Testament canon, it can make you a little nervous because you, you tend to think Jesus ascended and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John sit down and it's like, I'm going to write to Jewish people. Who are you going to write to? Let's share stories. You think that happens the next week, but it doesn't. Greg? Well, it's just the opposite in our culture. I mean, we play this game when we're kids, like you uh, tell one person something, and yes. by the time it gets to the end of the line, it's totally distorted. Yeah. So it's like we can't even fathom. I mean, I'm aware that our probably our cognitive skills of remembering things aren't as good as they were back then. Right, right? yeah. Yeah, it's the whole telephone game. Like you said, you just pass it down, pass it down. Why then, when you, I mean, I've watched documentaries on TV where some of the, some books written by apostles were left out. Mm -hmm. Why were they left out? A lot, of, we'll talk a little bit later about this, but because for whatever reason, some of them, um, like, didn't meet this criteria. Mm -hmm. 
and some of them they looked at and they just realized uh, these books, you know, collectively, they're looking collectively and saying, this is a good book. Like the Shepherd of Hermas is a good book, but we're not going to include that in, the script, in Scripture. So this was at least the criteria at the very beginning. There will be lots of other books that weren't written by apostles that were still called like the Gospel of Peter. And so people that are being passed off. And so they read through them. I'll read some quotes later from them where they read through them. And it was like, ah, it, basically, um, to sum it up, they're kind of like, this is a little hokey. Mm-hmm. Says it's written by Peter, whatever this letter is or this gospel is. But like, it's kind of fishy. And so they could kind of tell, too. But this was at least the criteria from the very beginning. Uh, like we've mentioned before, we have at least two other letters to the Corinthian church that Paul wrote. We don't know what happened to them. I think they would have passed these. But for whatever reason, I think those letters were possibly lost and God in his infinite wisdom had just determined that the other two letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church weren't included in the New Testament canon. Yeah, so, yeah, read, read the letter from Laodicea. Some people think that's the book of Colossians, but we don't know for sure. Uh, We don't know for sure, so there could be another letter that's out there. So it carried weight immediately because they're an apostle, but that didn't necessarily mean it got included. Um, So good question. Um, So yeah, it may make us nervous, but if someone struggles to believe that there was such a long passage of time between Jesus' ministry and when it all got written down some 30 years later, think about how much time passed between Adam and Eve and when Moses finally writes Genesis down. If 30 years bothers you, Moses wrote Genesis 2,500 years after Adam and Eve. He remembered all those crazy names, too. He remembered all those crazy names. Yeah, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then who wrote Job? I don't know. And because all that conversation in there. Some of that. Word for word. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're depending on the Holy Spirit to inspire these people and it, using their brain and their handwriting and their personality, but inspiring them to write. Uh, but I would also say the oral tradition, I believe. I believe the Spirit kept the oral tradition going as well. Yeah. Greg? Well, I was just going to uh, talk about, you know, with all these other books that they didn't include, is it possible that uh, there is a sequential and does the Bible refer to, like, the complete knowledge of the gospel or the truth will come out in the end, right, or something? Um, but is it possible that there is a perfect sequential listing of books and events that, you know, like, as you get further in your Christian life, you know, you, yeah. you discover that while everything backs each other up, it's all kind of confused, you know, mixed up, you know, as far yeah. as what you would yeah, the Bible never never really says that. Uh, it, you do have Peter saying, you know, Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. You have Paul in First Timothy saying, you know, he says the Scripture says, and he's obviously quoting Luke's gospel because Luke's the only one that has that saying of Jesus. But there's never a definitive like end of Revelation or anything like that. Like these are the books. In fact, the church we'll talk about in a minute. They did struggle. Uh, they nailed 20 to 21 books for quite a while, and there was a handful that still they're trying to determine which ones. We'll, we'll talk about that later, but there's never, there is a point where we at least have all of the books listed and saying this is what we have. But the closer it got to that, there was still four or five that the church was having conversations about. Should Are we include this? No, I'm talking about like getting to the end, like Jude, Revelation, the the last handful of books that we know as the New Testament. The last, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Eventually, there they the church makes the decision. No, these these books should be included in the canon, um, and then it's official. Like it becomes official at a church council where they're like, okay, this is it. This is official. End of discussion. We believe that God is leading us to say these 27 books are the word of God and we're not opening up this discussion anymore. Um, so there was there was debate with a few. That that may make people uncomfortable, but the spirit just didn't come down and say, hey guys, here it is. God worked. We believe in God's providence and his sovereignty working through these things to what we to where what we have is God's word. How did Hebrews get passed through if it didn't fit number one? Hebrews is one that they that they struggled with. 
because they didn't, you know, as far as we know, they don't know. They, they do have, oh, I can't remember. Oh, um, some, some church fathers think, hey, this guy wrote that. Um, but it was one of the books that went back and forth. But if you read Hebrews, even if it's not passing apostolicity or antiquity, at least you can't prove it. Um, from that standpoint, you're definitely saying, man, everybody agrees this and it's lining up with it's, it's clearly. I, my guess would be as far as the antiquity happening before 100 AD, there's a passage where the, the author of Hebrews says uh, that the old covenant is passing away and soon will be. And I think they would look at I think you could look at that and say that it happened before 70 AD. So they were able to like put it in that time period and say, okay, even if we can't say for sure it was written by one of the apostles, clearly one of the apostles must have discipled this guy because he knows the scriptures forwards and backwards. And so I think it does pass the test, just not right off the bat as far as, because we don't know who wrote it. Uh, I, one, of the, one of the, if it was Origen maybe, I think Origen maybe said, he said, only God knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. He just kind of like, let's just end the discussion. Some people think Paul, some people think Barnabas, and he just said, you know what? Only God knows. Let's move on. So anyway, I think that's how uh, it would do it. So, Benji, mm-hmm. so it's not that these other writings couldn't also be considered, or were considered Holy Spirit inspired, you know, or God breathed. But we have to trust that the Holy Spirit was directing which books. Yes. Yeah. I would would say the the inspired slash God-breathed aspect of would be limited to the 27 books. Not that the Spirit couldn't work through uh, Paul writing another letter to Corinth. But not in the way that Scripture is where Paul says, you know, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Mm -hmm. There's something unique about the 27 that, that I think that inspired... Does that mean that the Spirit was working through Paul as a shepherd to the Corinthian church as he's writing these other two letters? Was he working through him? Absolutely. But there's something unique about the two we have that the Spirit said these are the two that are being included. Is the Spirit working through people through these other letters? Yeah, because the early church said, hey, the Shepherd of Hermas is a great book. Read it. You may learn and grow, but it's not Scripture. So they're recognizing there's truth there. But not truth that you're going to stake your life on and say this is a promise from God. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a good yeah. way to explain it. Because that, that's a question. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. They will, the, the early church will clearly acknowledge that a lot of these other letters and things like the apostolic fathers that we looked at in their writings are saying these are good. And some of those letters were in the discussion. But they eventually, through this list and through however they determined, they said, you know, Shepherd of Hermas is great. But we're not including that in the canon. Okay. And we have to trust that. that and we have to, at the end of the day, I have to trust that I left my Bible. I've got my phone here. I'll point to my phone. That this Bible, this iPhone, is the Word of God. I have to trust that at some point. because other, and, and growing up, I always did. I never questioned it. Till you get into church history, you start studying, and you have to come to grips. You have to be okay with some mystery here and say the Spirit was working through his people. just And what was really helpful to me is just understanding Moses with Adam and Eve. We've got 2,500 years of history and Moses finally writes it down. So the 30-year gap at first seems like oh, 30 years. Then you realize, wait a minute, 2,500 years? This is a long time happened. And then Jesus is looking back at the Old Testament and saying, this is the word of God. You know, and so he's affirming a 2,500 year gap between Adam and Moses and saying the spirit can preserve that oral tradition until it gets written down. And so if Jesus is okay with 2,500 years of a preserved oral tradition. I'm okay with 30 years and trusting that the spirit is working. So, yeah, it comes down to faith. We have to trust. And, and I think we can. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Revelation is the last one written probably in the 90s. And so if you have, just like you said, if anyone adds anything to this book, 
Um, let him be accursed. And so I think we have it closing before 100 AD. Um, so they're all written before then, but the discussions will go on for another couple centuries, at least a century, and then maybe a little more. But we'll see early on, maybe as close as 150 AD, most of them are quoted or attested to by then. So at least within 50 to 60 years of the last one, the book of Revelation being written, we have evidence of the early church fathers and the apostolic fathers that we've looked at who are quoting portions of all of these books. And so that gives me comfort that, hey, they're, they're reading and dealing with this. And so... So, 2,500 years is nothing to the Holy Spirit, though, right? Between Adam and Eve and Moses, he can preserve the oral tradition with ease. Um, Let's think about this. What kind of world did the apostles grow up in? They grew up in a world, they grew up in a faith tradition that, that when God speaks, it's written down. Even if there's a passage of time between when God spoke and when it got published on paper. So, in the Old Testament, God would speak. It would eventually be written down. Whether on stone, like the Ten Commandments, or on a scroll, like the book of Isaiah. Like the book of Isaiah is not one big sermon that he delivered at one time. It's a collection of sermons that get put together in a book at some point. And obviously Jesus is okay with taking chunks of Isaiah's sermons and they get compiled into one book. Because Jesus affirms Isaiah. So this is very common is that God speaks and at some point it's written down first. I mean, Isaiah just preached this first. He preached these messages and then in time they're written down and recorded. Um, so it's just how the prophets work. They delivered their messages and then later on they're collected and put into book form and written down. They verbally delivered it and then it's written down. So if God spoke to his people then it was natural to put God's spoken word down on paper. And this is just how the Old Testament was put together. Here's a few verses. Exodus 17, 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 8. And now go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. Jeremiah 30, verse 2, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write it in a book, all the words that I've spoken to you. Habakkuk 2, 2, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. So we see a pattern here. God's revelation comes and then it is written down and the passage of time is not a problem for the Holy Spirit. And this is what the apostles were used to. This is the faith tradition that they grew up in. They received God's revelation and they knew it, it's appropriate for us to write this down. In fact, this is what Jesus tells John in the book of Revelation, which I believe is the last one written. Revelation 1, verses 10 through 11. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. We see it with Luke as he begins his gospel. He says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So there's an oral tradition that's happening. And Luke says, Theophilus, you've heard this oral tradition about Jesus passed down. Now I'm going to write it down for you in an orderly account so that you may have certainty that what you believed is true. Um, we see it with Jude. Jude verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. And then in John's gospel, John 20 verses 30 to 31, it says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so there's a tradition with God's people. Revelation gets written down. God's revelation of his word gets written down on a stone or a scroll or by the end of the first century and on to the second century and then to, and beyond into a book form, what they call codex. So keep in mind that the 12 apostles could not reach the world by themselves, could they? They could not be everywhere. They could not preach everywhere. So they realized we need to write God's revelation down to further help us get the gospel message out there so that these books that we're writing down and these letters can get copied and copied and spread as far as wide as possible because the apostles know we can't go on a, like a speaking tour here. 
Like we need to write these things down and let people copy them so that God's word uh, reaches the nations. So modern scholars then say that it's around 200 A.D. when the canon is in place. So we saw last time that the four Gospels were recognized uh, by 170 A.D. by a man named Tatian, who put all four Gospels into one big book. He called it the Diatessaron, which in Latin means through the four. So Tatian helped the church by putting together his mega gospel, which included Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's all in 170 A.D. Irenaeus, who we looked at uh, by 170 A.D., also uh, says that all four Gospels are widely accepted by the church. Uh, If you remember uh, Irenaeus, he was one of the apologists. He was a pastor of a church in France. He sat under the ministry of Polycarp. And in 180 A.D., Irenaeus said that there are four winds, just as there are four winds and four directions, so too there are four Gospels. Uh, But Irenaeus doesn't just mention the four Gospels. He also mentions many of the letters of the New Testament. He mentions all of Paul's letters. He mentions the book of Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 1 and 2 John, and Revelation. And Irenaeus actually cites over 1,000 passages in total from the New Testament. That's by 180 AD. You've got at least one man who's quoting 1,000 passages from the New Testament. And he cites them as scripture, assuming that his audience knows these verses that I'm citing are scripture. He's not citing them with a footnote that says, after he quotes Paul, he doesn't put a footnote that says, some churches do not believe that these words are scripture. He assumes his audience knows what I'm saying to you is God's word. Keep in mind, Irenaeus was discipled by Polycarp, who was discipled by the Apostle John. So you have that line of trustworthiness there. You have Jesus to John to Polycarp to Irenaeus. So you have this this line of trustworthiness um, as opposed to Marcion. If you remember, Marcion couldn't produce a line of trustworthiness when he came along. And so Tertullian said to Marcion, if you remember, he said, Who are you? When and whence did you come? What are you doing on my land? By what right are you cutting down my timber, Marcion? This property belongs to me. I am heir to the apostles. Remember, Marcion came along. He had his own New Testament canon. He had Paul's ten letters and then a chopped up version of Luke. He took out everything Jewish about the book of Luke. And then he said, this is Luke's gospel. And so Tertullian says, who are you to come along? Who discipled you? I can go back to Polycarp, who goes back to John, who goes back to Jesus. Where's your line of trustworthiness? And Polycarp, I mean, uh, Marcion couldn't say anything. In fact, Irenaeus calls him, recalls a meeting between his mentor Polycarp and the heretic Marcion. And in this encounter, Marcion came up to Polycarp and he, and he said, Do you remember who I am? And I love Polycarp, his reply. He said, I do know you, the firstborn of Satan. So we can trust Irenaeus' words because he quotes freely over 1,000 verses of the New Testament. Then we have Clement of Alexander who we saw uh, earlier. He was uh, a part of the kind of seminary, if you will, in Alexandria in Egypt. He discipled Origen, who we looked at a while ago. Clement extensively quotes scripture in his writings. He mentions Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Clement lived between 150 to about 211. Clement quotes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, says these are the only four Gospels. He also received all, 13, all of Paul's epistles, uh, Hebrews, Acts, First and Second John, Jude, and Revelation. And then we have Justin Martyr, back even closer to the first half of the second century. Justin Martyr, who we looked at a while ago, was one of the apologists. He, Justin Martyr is the guy who discipled Tatian, who gave us mega gospel. So Justin Martyr knew the Gospels because Tatian comes along his disciple and says, I want to put together a mega gospel. Justin Martyr mentions plural Gospels in his writings. He says, these are the Gospels, plural, drawn up by his apostles and those who followed him. So back into the first half of the second century, Justin Martyr lived between 100 and 165 AD. You have Justin Martyr saying there are four Gospels. He cites Matthew, Mark, and Luke in his writings He's the one who tells us that Mark got information when he put his gospel together from Peter. So Justin Martyr is the one who tells us that Peter discipled Mark and told Mark what to put in his gospel. 
We also have good evidence that Justin knew of John's gospel because he uses the word logos, the Greek word logos, which means word. He uses that uh, a lot in his writings, probably tipping his hat to John. And I think he cites John, uh, John's gospel at one point. So we have the testimony of Justin Martyr. So we're looking at the gospels, the four gospels being in place by 150 A.D., And so by the time we get to the end of the 2nd century, 280, we have four Gospels in place as well as uh, the core of the New Testament. That doesn't mean that everybody has their own copy of the New Testament, but the letters are circulating. And so by the end of the 2nd century, what we know as our New Testament was widely accepted by all the churches with a few books that were disputed. And so technically the canon was not officially fixed by the church and solidified until the middle of the 4th century uh, at a church council. But we have prior to that, 150 years prior to that, we have widespread acceptance about which books are considered to be authoritative. And so it's misleading if you hear someone say, well, the canon wasn't fixed until the middle of the 4th century. That's misleading because by the end of the 2nd century... We have uh, 20 to 21 of the 27 New Testament books that are in place. We have the four Gospels. We have the book of Acts. We have many of Paul's epistles and probably 1 Peter by the end of the second century. Now, that's important. Because we have churches all across uh, uh, the Mediterranean world who are affirming 20 to 21 of the 27 New Testament books. Think about it. That's a huge chunk of the New Testament in place, widely accepted by all these churches. I don't know how many churches there were, but that's a lot. That's a whole lot of sinners agreeing on 20 to 21 books, right? I mean... Churches don't usually agree with one another in their own congregation, let alone churches in other cities and other countries. And so the rest of the discussion about the canon that plays out until the middle of the 4th century are over books that for one reason or another were considered to be on the fringe because they were too short or they were a little different. Like the book of Revelation, it's apocalyptic Strange. You got all these weird things happening in that book. You've got Philemon and Jude, which were short, and they're like, ah, these seem a little short. You've got Second Peter, which has a, an apocalyptic flair to it as well. And so it took a while for those books to settle in. Obviously, some churches were accepting them, others were still in the discussion. Other books that were considered but not ultimately included, and a few of you have kind of asked about this First Clement, which we looked at a long time ago, The Shepherd of Hermas. Uh, these books never got corporate recognition across the board, of, across the board of all the churches like other books did. Um, if we fast forward to the fourth century, we have more evidence. Eusebius, who was the bishop of Caesarea, uh, he was the, really the first church historian. Uh, he gives an account of the New Testament canon uh, that's current through his day. He distinguished three categories. We won't have time to go through them all tonight, but he kind of he said there are those that are universally acknowledged, there are those that are disputed, and there are those that are spurious. And by this, he means they're non-canonical. And he said there are some that are universally acknowledged. And he mentions um, the four Gospels, the Book of Acts, the Epistles of Paul, the Epistles of John, the Epistle of Peter. Um, And the Apocalypse of John, he says it kind of seems right. Um, What's interesting here is that Eusebius includes the book of Revelation in the canon. But he also mentions that there's some concern about it. And he adds it to the spurious non-canonical books. So he's got it in the universally acknowledged. And then he also has it in the non-canonical books. And I'll explain why in just a minute. Uh, There were disputed books that he mentions. The epistle of James, he says here, is disputed. Jude is disputed. The second epistle of Peter Uh, Second and third John uh, is disputed. Then he goes on to mention the spurious that he calls non-canonical. And he says the Acts of Paul and the Shepherd, uh, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Teaching of the Apostles, the Didache. Um, And then he says, in addition, as I said, the Apocalypse of John, if it seems right. Now, so Eusebius includes the book of Revelation uh, not in, just in the list of disputed books, but in the spurious ones as well. So he said, Revelation belongs in the widely accepted category, and it belongs in the list of non-canonical books. Now, why does he do that? 
The reason that Eusebius includes the book of Revelation in both lists is indicative of how we can be as sinners. Eusebius knew the majority of the churches accept the book of Revelation and regarded it as scripture, but he himself did not like the book. So he said, well, I acknowledge that John wrote it. I just don't think it should be included in the canon. And so he's kind of on the fence here. Everybody agrees that Revelation should be in the canon, but I'm also going to include it in the non-canonical books. It's just how we are as sinners. Get a preference. Uh, he goes on to speak of different spurious books and how the church recognized them and, and they could kind of pick up on the language. Um, he says that he recognizes that people forged letters in the apostles' names and tried to pass them off as authentic. So you have the Gospel of Peter. You have the Acts of John that were circulated. People were claiming that these came from the hands of the apostles. But Eusebius said, it's a long quote, I won't read it. Uh, he said, you could tell these were fakes. The language and the wording is off, Eusebius says. The content and the style was wrong. And most importantly, he's basically saying these other writings that are not included in the canon, they just don't jive with the apostolic tradition that we have. They don't line up with all of these things here. Um, so we eventually get to A.D. 367 when Athanasius, who we'll look at eventually, he writes what is called the Festal Letter, his Festal Letter, and he lists the 27 books of the New Testament, and then that gets reasserted at the various councils that occur at the end of the 4th century and into the beginning of the 5th century. So here's the bottom line as we talk about the New Testament canon. Is that you can trust the Bible that you hold in your hand. That it is the authoritative word of God. And you can trust every promise in that book. The Holy Spirit oversaw the coordination. He oversaw the writing of. And the coordination of. And the collection of both the Old and the New Testaments. And so you can trust. When you pick up the Bible. You can trust that God is opening his heart to you. And so if you can trust that the Bible is the word of God and you can, then take it up and read. Hide it in your heart. His word is better than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. David said it's sweeter than honey to our mouth. So enjoy God as you enjoy his word because the Bible that you have in your hand is the very words of God. And you can trust that. Questions or comments? The Shepherd of Hermas. Yes, I did back when we looked at the Apologist so long ago. If I remember correctly, the Shepherd of Hermas is the kind of apocalyptic one with a bunch of weird kind of end time imagery. Mm -hmm. If I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, you read it and you're kind of like, man. <laughs> this... That was John's job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, John's was too. Uh, but yeah, you can read it. You, you just, if you just Google the Shepherd of Hermas, you, you, you'll find it online. Well, I was going to ask you, but you yeah. just said uh, how it differed from his other letters. You know? Yeah, so I don't remember off the top of my head. I just remember reading it and thinking, okay, I can see why this was disputed. But you see some truth there too. It seems to me like, I, man, it's this old age thing. Do Paul was the author of the Shepherd of Hermas? Or? No, they don't know that Paul was. We don't, yeah, no, it's... As far as Paul wasn't, because it's written in the uh, second century. So the Shepherd of Hermas is written by, who knows, Hermas, is, I guess. So uh, we don't, as far as I know, we don't know who wrote it. Um, and it's just a collection of writings and things like that. And so you can go back and read these things. There's interesting stuff. You'll, you'll know, if you know your Bible, you'll, you'll pick up on little quotes and verses and be like, oh, he's talking about this passage or that passage. You'll see that that's very heavy in their writings. They're just not saying Luke 10, 38, Proverbs 3, 5 says this. But you'll recognize phrases and you start realizing they knew God's word. It was a different culture, a culture of hearing and so when they go to church on Sunday, they're hearing God's word and they're talking about it and saying, oh, no, no, let me clarify that. He actually said this. And somebody else says, yeah, that's right. The pastor said this. This is what God's word says. So they're used to that uh, verbal tradition, whereas we're not so much. And they also had a group of people that were responsible for making sure that they didn't get too convoluted as far as the uh, explanation of the scriptures that are ready for him. 
Oh, yeah. Um, as far as like the oral tradition? Yeah. So as they're telling stories about Jesus, uh, eventually people are going to step in and correct. If they've heard the elders or people in church, you know, if they hear that, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, if, they, if they were talking about the temptation account of Jesus and they were saying, oh, uh, Satan took Jesus up on a mountain and said, throw yourself down. They would have stopped and said, no, it was the temple. Remember, it was the temple, right? And everybody said, oh, yeah, it was the temple. They helped preserve that oral tradition and would, would catch each other. And the article kind of talks about that a little bit, about how the way uh, oral tradition works in cultures. Uh, there's an example in there, too, of someone who spent time in like a Middle Eastern culture and just how they're – it's just, we're, it's just so foreign to us. You so know? are all these books that we're talking about, you know, the ones that weren't included in stuff as part of the original canon, are they all considered like the Apocrypha? Not the Apocrypha. No, these are just, these are other, other letters that were written at the time. A lot of them had, uh, I mean, just the nature of, because we're sinners, as people are writing these books, you know, there's some guy sitting around one day thinking, I'm going to write the Gospel of Peter. And if I write that at the top and kind of spread it as that way because Peter carries weight, I'm going to kind of throw it out there. And if somebody then copies it, you know, and then they copy and they start spreading. Did you hear there's a gospel of Peter? That starts spreading. People start talking. And then sooner or later, the church is like, wait a minute. Like, it's not passing the orthodoxy test. I don't care if you think it's written by Peter. I don't even care if it's written by Peter. If we could prove it was written by Peter. If it doesn't pass the orthodoxy and the churches aren't widely accepting it, I don't care if it passes the apostolicity or antiquity. If it goes against the Old Testament scripture, I don't care if Peter wrote it. It's not going in the canon. It's kind of like viral, like on YouTube videos, you know? Yeah, I think it just, you know, it did. And Marcion took off. He had his... Uh, Paul's, 10 of Paul's letters, or maybe all of Paul's letters, and then that chopped up version of Luke's, and he's going around his church and saying, this is the New Testament. Let's copy it. Your small group, take it home and copy it. Here's your New Testament. Paul's letters and Luke's gospel chopped to pieces. There's the word of God for you. And that's what Marcion would have been doing in his church, and people would have been copying it. And so the church is coming alongside and saying, show us your line of trustworthiness. Who did you come from? Who discipled you? And so... Um, Polycarp could say, was it Polycarp? I'm confused. Could say, I was discipled by John who came from Jesus. It was Irenaeus to Polycarp to John to Jesus. And so Marcion couldn't do that, even though he's trying to pass off his own version of the New Testament. Which, clearly, what he had was God's word, but that's all he was saying. And, and so the church would have said, you've cut out a lot of Luke's gospel here which was spread and people knew at that time. Obviously, I think Paul knew Luke's gospel because he quotes it. And so they're coming along and saying, you can't chop up God's word like that. You know, and, and you, it's great that you've got those other letters, but it's, there's universal acceptance. There's Catholicity of all these other books, Marcy, and you can't say that they're not to be included because the church agrees that these books are God's word. So even though you may have... Paul's letters, which are God's word, you can't say that the canon is closed because there's still more that we are collecting and discussing. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So. Yeah, you yeah. still see that. Yeah. You've seen that over the centuries. It still happens now. Yeah. Where they're taking selective scripture. Yeah. And chopping it up. Yeah. I mean, we do that as sinners. You know, we 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 want to we want to read what we like. If it's we still do it. Uh, I don't want to read that scripture. I'll be convicted, right? It's just the nature of uh, sin since the garden. Did God really say? You know, that question undid us all, right? And it's always been about faith since the very beginning. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, God told his people, uh, teach it by the way when you lie down when you wake up, you know. Yeah. Uh, that was always, like you said, it's always been a moral tradition. Yeah, yeah. So as you, I mean, like I said, we come back to this is what we have is God's word. If you want to read it and study it, email me. I can send you some books uh, to talk about that might read. You can, you can read and study on this, on the canon. Uh, you, you have to deal, and I think that handout will help explain the oral tradition. That kind of lands on some people the first time, and it's like, oh, what? Like, there's 30 years before the Gospels are written? And so it kind of, we're people of faith. We're believing that God has put together his word. If we really believe that the Bible is God's word, 
we have to believe that God in his sovereignty is going to preserve that word through history. Uh, it's the word of God is living and active, right? It brings life and enlightenment. So if someone had Second Peter and they had a copy of it and were reading it in 130 AD, whether or not the church had said, this is God's word, it's official, is someone reading Second Peter, even though it was widely disputed, if they're reading that in their church, on a Sunday morning, is it going to bring life? Is it going to bring illumination? Is it going to convict? Is it going to encourage? Yeah, different from the shepherd of Hermas. I mean, we read books here, and they're good, and they encourage us. But there's a difference between reading uh, a book like John Piper's Desiring God or Tim Chester Enjoying God or whatever, and reading the Bible. Those books are good, and they can encourage us. But Scripture is alive and so whether or not the church had affirmed it in 130 AD, if you're reading 2 Peter and that's the word of God, it's going to do its work. And that's really how you know at the end of the day. It's like when you read the Bible, if you go home, I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, it's different than reading other things. The Spirit is at work. He takes His word. And so at the end of the day... I do get very subjective about it in that I know how God's word has made an impact on my life different than other books, which I love and like a lot. So I think the early church, too, recognized that, too, as they read that. They're like, there's something about this that has this authority. The spirit is at work behind it. He's illuminating my mind. He's refreshing my heart and that at the end of the day, for me, one of the litmus tests for me to trust it by faith is that I there's something that happens when I read scripture. Not always. I don't get always get goosebumps, but I know that it's God's word, mm-hmm. right? Say. Why yeah. the different versions of I would say that most of what we have, our English translations, are good and they are God's word. Uh, there might be some verses we might differ on. Uh, obviously, you get into some paraphrases, like the Living Bible is a paraphrase. I used to read that as a kid, and then I, you know, as I grew, I was like, wait a minute, this is just like a, a paraphrase. Like the message is a paraphrase. You know, a lot of people read that. It's good, you know. Eugene Peterson was a pastor. He wrote that as he preached through books for his church and kind of used that for his congregation. It eventually gets published. I wouldn't take it as your only source of Bible reading because it's just it's like a paraphrase and explanation. Uh, it's not kind of a word for word the best that you can get. So most of our translations, yes, there are some that I would probably be like, oh, I don't know about that, you know, or maybe. But in general, yes. Yeah, it just depends on your style. Do you like King James Version? If that's your style, go for it. If you like the New American Standard, the ESV, the NIV, the Net Bible is really good. I like the Net Bible, New English Translation. Um, there's all kinds. So what we have, you can kind of then compare. You know, you, you would know if you came across something. I was like, that seems a little fishy. Why did they say that? You know, uh, but for the most part, what we have in our English translations is is the Word of God. Just how you word it differently. Jesus wept or Jesus cried? Does, is there a difference there? In, an English translation may word it differently uh, in each case, but the point is that he shed tears. You might, there may be a translation that says Jesus shed tears. I mean, that's kind of, may not be word for word literal there, but you get the, the idea. Greg? Okay. Oh, I was just, I, I had a question regarding the uh, translation into other languages. Do they have the same options as we do, ESV and IV? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I assume they probably have a very limited number of them, the way we do. I mean, uh, in, in contrast to what we have, you know, I think they would I have. I think it would be hard, well, maybe not, but for like Chinese or the, or the, uh, yeah. the Muslims to uh, understand the, the talking of the King James Version. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. But maybe no more. But they're doing their best, and each one is looking. We want to look at the original, the Greek, uh, the Hebrew, and there's a small portion in the Old Testament that's actually written in Aramaic. They're going to look at those, the translators, and do their best to, they should be doing their best to try to get uh, that into, so that they're dealing with the original languages and trying to capture that 
as opposed to just going off of an English translation. They have a pretty good track record. Yeah, yeah. Um, Wycliffe is really good about this, you know, working in that. And then trying to put that and find the word in that language. That's usually the problem then, or the struggle, is how do we take that concept and make it work and find a word in that language that captures that. And so that's sometimes the struggle, but, but they make it work. Yeah. So bottom line, you have God's word in your hand. Read it, love it, cherish it. Share it with others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for preserving your word all these many years. Thank you that it's true, that we can trust every single word of it. Would you cause us as a church and as a class to hide your word in our heart that we may not sin against you. In Jesus' name, amen.